Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Cargo of Bricks. Now this week, I'm lucky enough to have been joined by Eric Lonergan, who along with his colleague Professor Mark Blythe of Brown University in the US, has written and just published the most fascinating book called Angrynomics. Now the book probes the political and economic conditions that have given rise to a major global swing towards populism. Not only does it look at the causes for that, but it also comes up with some proposals about what might be done without, as they say in the book, taxing the hell out of everyone or bankrupting the state. First up, I asked Eric about the two different kinds of anger that they define clearly within the book. There was a key turning point in writing the book, which was Mark's a professor of political economy. I'm an economist by training. We had a kind of economic theory about what was going on in the world, what, what, to explain politics. And for whatever reason, we were having, we got together in London, we were in a, in a hotel room and we were trying to do this dialogue between the pair of us. And on one of the, I think it was three days in, and Mark suddenly went, what about anger? What are we going to say about anger? It's everywhere. And, and it was just a key turning point. Suddenly the intellectual juices got flowing because we thought, we all know what anger is. Everybody's talking about anger. And yet I found myself completely inarticulate. If you'd said to me, why do humans get angry? What does anger signify? Is there good anger? Is there bad anger? Um, I'd never really thought about it. And so this is a fascinating dimension to it, that it's something that children are familiar with, where every human being knows what it is. And yet none of us can really talk about it or describe it. And so we started to read some of the literature. And the first thing that came up, which is the oldest idea, dates all the way back to the Greek philosophers and Aristotle, is the idea of moral outrage. And this is actually what most of the literature in neuroscience, in psychology, in philosophy, most of it talks about moral outrage. So human beings, more often than not, will get angry if they witness an injustice. So it's a way of enforcing our sense of morality, our sense of what is right in the ethical sense. To make this contemporary, there's a wonderful CNN uh, video on YouTube at the moment with Cornell West. I don't know if you've seen him, Mick, but he's fantastic. He's a, I think he's a professor at Princeton or Harvard, and he's one of the kind of intellectual forefathers, a whole civil rights movement uh, in, and Black Lives Matter in America. And he has this wonderful set of phrases where he says, what would it say about us as a society if people weren't out on the streets protesting? So what would it say about us if you could see police brutality like that and nobody got angry? And that's, that is actually, that is what Aristotle talks about, about anger as an appropriate response to injustice. So that's the first type. The second type then, and this was the, 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 the really bizarre insight, which is both obvious and perplexing, is we did a data search of news stories. And we got the, the big data program, IBM program, to sort the stories by anger. And the second most frequent type of story that mentions anger is angry sports fans, right? Now, the first thing you're going to say is, did you really need to do a data search? It's like, I think that was a really complex algorithm. Like anybody who's ever gone to a football match knows that's true, right? But then, but you also ask yourself, why is it that men, and it's usually men, pay good money to travel to appalling parts of the country in the, in the driving rain to watch a really rubbish game of football and get angry? 
Um, and that's the second type, which is we started to think about this and we think of it as, as a tribal identity regulator. There's this tribal rage, which when we want to turn one color, when we want to back one flag or take one side, anger seems to play this role of regulating us and converting us into a given uh, tribal individual. So those are the two types, the, the anger of angels, this kind of moral outrage and the anger of devils, which is a precursor to violence, which is tribal rage. And in the first case, the moral anger is a kind of almost an improving agent within society. Without it, we simply wouldn't, we would stay in the same track or the same circle over and over again. But I thought one of the interesting things you said about the anger of fans is that some fans are more angry than others. Yeah. And actually they play this kind of enforcement role of enforcing the the true loyalty of the rest of the more moderate fan base. Well, that's exactly right. So I started going to football matches. We got a bit bored with the football at this point and started to watch the fans. And what was most interesting are the that we all expect the fans will attack the opposition. They'll have a go at the referee. But what's interesting is why do they have a go at their own players? And why do they even turn on each other? And this is exactly what you described. There's a hierarchy of loyalty and commitment. And with my economist hat on, I started to think, this is a kind of problem in game theory. If you're about to go to war, send the other guy to the front line. Right? You don't really want to be the first one to go to war. Right? So what you need to happen is you need these little these guys running around making everybody a warrior. And not only that threatening you, if you don't if you don't get ready for a fight, now there's a problem. So clearly, as precursors to violence in, in, in tribal entities, there are the individuals within our society that regulate us to be tribal. Uh, and it is about commitment and loyalty. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a great illustration, I think, of the core idea within all, within all of this. Um, but but taking it. Slightly dodging the economics, which yeah. would be my strongest kind of point. <laughs> I, th- th- there's something in this where you kind of say just how, it, when we get into politics, how angry minorities can win. Mm. They, they can beat, and there's, I, think there's, I think there's a bit towards the back where you say that uh, Macron won in France partly because French people don't vote. or th- 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 No th- one turned out. Yeah, no one turned out. You're absolutely right. Take us through the dynamics of how the angry minority can t- can take over, actually quite m- countries or polities with quite moderate um, tendencies within the majority. Well, it, a majoritarian system is very interesting, like we have, where you have a vote and then the majority wins, or the majority determines the result, and people assume that's majority rule. It's very rarely majority rule, because usually most of our societies are very closely balanced. So maybe you're. this direction, 49% the other, which means the politicians are trying to move a couple of percent. So actually, it's a minority that is determining most election results. Um, Now, and if you look at Trump, take Trump as an example. Trump won with 80,000 votes. So he got 80,000 votes in the critical constituencies that were enough to give him a considerable majority. Um, That's a fraction of 1% of the US population. And this does relate directly to anger, because if you look at the work in political science, angry people are more likely to vote. They're motivated. They care. So as a politician, if you can 
trigger that anger and target those individuals to back you, you can win elections. But there's a thing that where I think, and it strikes me not simply how the book is written, but also the way, because Mark, in a sense, is something of a, uh, how can I put it, a bit of a celebrity as far as uh, the online world is concerned. I mean, my wife was going to bed uh, a couple of weeks ago and, I was still up at 11 o'clock in the evening and watching this YouTube video. And she said to me, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm watching this professor in America. (laughs) She went, really? She just shook her head, walked off and left me to it. But, (laughs) um, but, but what struck me about uh, Mark's consistent analysis is just how little he gets caught on the hook of condemning the populists. That actually there is a weakness here in the mainstream politicians that populists are simply taking an advantage of Mm. and in some ways becoming a a tribune for a lot of people whose voices simply aren't heard within the mainstream system. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. That is one of his great strengths, and it's probably something that I've learned from him as well, uh, which is to recognize that, that the populists are very effective and they haven't, what's populism hasn't arisen in a vacuum. So, so if you think of both these two forms of anger, and this is hopefully what's helpful about the book, is it gives one a language with which to make sense of a lot of what otherwise seems confusing, is someone like Trump has absolutely triggered moral outrage when he goes to the Rust Belt. And, and the message he sent in the Rust Belt, you know, those parts of America where there's been high unemployment, where there's been deindustrialization, where the manufacturing sector has been in decades of decline, which has suffered the brunt of the effects of globalization, stagnant wages. You know, and those people have not been represented. They haven't been heard. Nobody's listened to them. The Democratic Party has taken them for granted. And he made ethical arguments when he went there. He was tapping into something very, very real. And he even says, I am your voice. You know, that's a moral argument. Um, so you, you might disagree with them. You might say it's cynical. You might say it's manipulation. But you have to recognize the reality of it. And for decades, large chunks of the population have been ignored and neglected. And there's been no answer. I think the interesting thing that you've just said there is Trump said to those voters in the Rust Belt swing states, I am your voice. Yeah. And I think there's, a, there's an insight, I think, in, your, uh, in the book where you basically say that um, – for most of the centrist governments, the mainstream, the moderate uh, governments, is they tend to bias towards um, the voices of the elites and are simply no longer listening to the, the people at the base, as we might say in Ireland, the people of the parish. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. So I think one of the things that happened and we do, there's a little bit of sort of history of political economy in the book is that if, if you go back to, you know, the politics of the 70s and 80s, that, that Cold War era, politics was very, very motivating, right? There, there were motivating by ideas rather than just tribes. There's always been tribalism, but, there, but we were motivated by ideas, you know, what could the state achieve? What could the market achieve? You know, there were big, big political debates about ideas that affected people's lives. And I think what happened in neoliberalism, for want of a better term, but in a sense, after the Cold War, where there was this consensus of sort of leave the state as it is, maybe shrink the state, let the market run its course, have independent central banks, 
is actually politics for a lot of people became meaningless. Didn't make any difference who was in charge. And actually, none of the big issues were being tackled. Nobody was addressing the environment. Nobody was addressing inequality. And once a decade, you had a recession, which pretty much fell on the, on the weakest in society. And nobody really had any big idea or, or ambition that would tackle any of those issues in a way that you could see, you know, as a member of the parish. And I think what's then happened is into that vacuum have stepped the populace who've said, we, we've got an answer to these problems. Also, I think in there is, is Gordon Brown's decision to kind of make the Central Bank of England um, independent, thus giving up many of the material tools that an elected politician could uh say, create an industrial policy that brought British jobs for British workers, yeah. to quote Gordon Brown himself. So where does that leave us now? Right. I mean, this is a fascinating aspect. So, so Mick, the way we try to think to make economics more accessible is, 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 is Mark has this great analogy of thinking of the, the economy as like a computer, which has crashed every 10 to 30 years. And you get this huge response from the population that sort of says we have to do better. And we rewrite the code. If you think the pre-war economy, which was sort of, you know, complete, uh, unconstrained free market capitalism, had a major crash. And you then had the, the mixed economy, which is you then accept we need to have a welfare state. We need to provide unemployment insurance. We need to provide deposit insurance for banks. All of these interventions. And in a sense, what happened is there was a crash in the computer after the financial crisis, but we never rewrote the code. And, and we still haven't rewritten the code. We can see a crash coming in terms of what it means for our environment. There's a kind of, there's a major problem with the distribution of wealth where 90% of the wealth is held by 1% of the population, which is crazy. And we have these brutal recessions. And so we haven't written the code to solve those problems. So the, the final third of the book or 20% of the book is, a, is we have a go at rewriting the code because we think we need to change this system so that it works for way, way more people in a way that's tangible, something that people will go out and vote for and will make a difference to their lives. Well, it's interesting because we're recording this actually on the Monday, which is the day where rather implausibly the two old foes from the 1920s yeah. uh, in Dublin have come together yeah. for the first time in 100 years, at least around a cabinet table. What do you think, Angrynomics, what lessons do you think it might have for... The, the finance minister, uh, Pascal Donoghue, yeah. uh, the new Tisha, um, Mial Martin. I mean, I've got a long list of things. Well, let me start. There's a lot they can do. And I think Ireland can do it because it's a small country that has a huge amount of punches way above its weight in terms of Europe. Um, we have Philip Lane, who's the chief economist at the European Central Bank, who's been an, an, a huge, huge intellectual figure. And I think there's multiple ways that Ireland can have a huge impact. So, so the first, and we need to think as a small country about how we can do the right thing, show other people what to do, and they'll copy us. So the first thing I would do is say we're going to make a real difference to inequality in Ireland, and we're going to have far greater ownership of assets across our population. And the way we're going to do it is just arithmetic. Right? You can't argue with arithmetic. So Ireland can issue 20-year bonds at zero interest rates, the Irish state. So what they should do is in the next three months, they should issue something like 15 or 20% of G GDP in zero interest rate bonds for 20 years. 
And then they should hold to tender. They should go out to all the major big asset managers in the world and say, we want you to bid to generate us a 4% return for the next 20 years. Now explain that in layman's terms. Okay, so what does that mean in layman's terms? It's a bit like this. Let's say the bank came to you and said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a 20-year mortgage at no, and I no interest, zero interest. So you don't pay me a penny. Just repay me the mortgage in 20 years' time. So I'll lend you 100 grand now. Pay me 100 grand in 20 years. You've got a tenant who's going to give you a 5% return. Right? What's not? That's win-win. Because you'll have compounded at 5% over 20 years, which means you more than double your money. You'll be able to repay the loan and you'll still own the equity in the house. Right? Okay. It's as simple as that. Now, and the beauty of this is we don't have, we don't have to worry about it. Why is somebody willing to lend to us at zero for 20 years? God only knows, but they are. And that's a huge opportunity. Do that within three months. Get going on it. Set it up properly. It's got to be arm's length from the government. It's got to be an independent authority. It's got to have a proper board of trustees. It reports to um, to the legislature every year. There's proper oversight, and it's done totally professionally. No interference from the politicians. Right. And then what you do is you distribute ownership to the 50% or the 80% of the population who don't have. So you give everybody a share in it. And that is something that will be like an inheritance, something that people can draw down for housing, for education, for healthcare. And it, it's ring fenced for 10 or 15 years until you can start repaying the debt. Okay, that's the first thing I'd do. Good. Uh, number two. Right. The second thing I'd say is we are going to we're going to be the most ambitious country on zero carbon emissions within the eurozone. And we're going to do it within five years. And we're going to use the state's balance sheet in the same way. And not only that, we are going to use the European Parliament to encourage the European Central Bank to finance a green investment boom. How do we do that? We do that very simply, which is at the moment. With no small thanks to no no little thanks to uh, to Philip Lane for this. The European Central Bank does something called targeted lending, right? Which is a program it has because of zero interest rates. We can't really cut interest rates any further, so they're doing targeted loans where they say to the banks, "We'll give you half a trillion euros at minus half a percent, as long as you let make these loans to small and medium sized enterprises." I'm saying, why don't we do that? Make them five or 10 year loans and link them to green investments. Okay, so in other words, what you said, the European Central Bank should be encouraged to come out and say, we're going to give you a five year loan at minus 3% via the banking system. But the banking system can only use those loans to fund sustainable energy investment. Now, given that the state controls your return on an energy investment, right, because the state controls the price of electricity. They can determine your return. You will get the private sector to completely rebuild your energy infrastructure. On free money, basically. On free money. And, and, the, and here's the thing. This is where you, you need the economists, right? Is when there's deflation, which is what we face at the moment, there's a free lunch because we can print money. And the only problem with printing money is that you have a boom and you create inflation. Right? Well, at the moment, we've got the opposite problem. 
Okay, so we are very, very lucky at the moment economically because the cost of credit is so low and the cost of money is so low. And it's a huge opportunity. So, Eric, how do we calm the anger? The first thing I think that would dramatically calm the anger is if, if you can imagine, uh, you know, 80% of the population, many, many of whom, the overwhelming majority of whom have virtually no assets. And yet the insecurity of their daily existence has increased dramatically. So, you know, and again, and economists are very are responsible for this. We've de- what does deregulation mean? Deregulation means more insecurity. You might lose your job. Your business might fail. Your skills become redundant. Now, we've realized that markets have produced us amazing things, right? So there's been huge, huge technological progress, huge improvements in standards of living in healthcare and technology, all of these things thanks to in large part, thanks to the market. But it's come at a cost, and the cost is insecurity in people's daily lives. Now, your, your life is far less insecure if you have some ownership of an asset, right? If you have some saving or protection. And, and really what the, the big changes in society that have, have really motivated people in a positive way politically are largely about providing security for human beings, right? We crave security. We, we don't mind the uncertainty and the risk as long as there's a safety net. And so there's a huge opportunity for this new Irish government to improve the safety net of Irish citizens. And it, it is economics. It means set up a national wealth fund where everybody's a stakeholder, where, you know, we've, you, you have this appalling concentration. How can we accept as a society that, that we can't do any better when 90% of our assets are owned by 1%? The 1% have more assets than they need. So finally, Eric, um, yeah. is it possible that the measures you've outlined could uh, enable the present government, say, with the tight timelines that they've got, yeah. to really begin to turn around some of the residual yeah. anger in the Republic. Also, there's a sense of is 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 the is the country society that your children are going to grow up in is it going to be a better one than the one that you grew up in? And people don't believe that. If anything, they think it's going to be a more dangerous one. There's environmental threats. There's threats from technology, social media. You know, if you look at mental health, where there's an epidemic, we need to we 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 need an economics that says no, no, don't worry, the future will be better. And the way to do that, and that's where the environment is a huge opportunity, because every society gets better through investment spending. What does that mean? You need to improve your infrastructure, rebuild your energy, make better cities, cleaner air, better jobs, more skills, invest in education. And here's the irony for me is, as an economist, I go, we can borrow it at the Irish government can borrow at negative real interest rates. They can do all the investment spending they need. This is a failure of the mind and a failure of, of willpower. So we just need to sit down and say, we're going to give ourselves five years and we're going to lead the world in energy investment as a green economy. I mean, why can't Ireland be a green economy, for God's sake? Cargo of Bricks is brought to you by Slugger O'Toole. Support us by going to sluggerotool.com and hit the donor box. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from.